Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. You are listening to episode 113, A Conversation with Theodora Blanchfield. Theodora is a Los Angeles-based writer and an associate marriage and family therapist. In 2015, as she was about to run the New York City Marathon, her mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She went through chemotherapy and surgery, and in the summer of 2016, was told that she had no evidence of disease. This is a milestone in the oncology world that we always, always celebrate. However, unfortunately, the celebration was short-lived because her mother's cancer returned a mere few months later, and one year to the day that she was given the no evidence of disease, her mother, Carol, passed away from ovarian cancer. On today's episode, she shares her experience with grief and what that journey has been like over the last few years, including a move to California. Please note that this conversation does include discussions of suicide. We often don't talk about how cancer affects the mental health of caretakers, both during the cancer treatment and beyond. I think that Theodora's experience is so important for everyone to hear. It is an honest, it is a raw and vulnerable look at what grief is really like, all of the ups, the downs, and everything in between. I urge you to listen to this episode in its entirety. And I just want to thank Theodora here for sharing and for being so open about what her life has been like and what she's gone through in the last few years. And with that, it is my honor to welcome Theodora Blanchfield to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Theodora, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So there's a lot to talk about, but I think why don't we just kind of get right into your story, your mom's diagnosis and what that was like. Yeah, so it's almost seven years ago now, which just like, even saying seven out loud just feels so weird. I mean, that feels like so long ago, but in some ways, it still feels like it was yesterday. Um, So my mom was the type of person who always very much kept up with every single doctor's appointment, and like told everybody in her life to do the same, like, was bugging me as an adult was bugging like her sister, her best friend. Um, so it like felt a little ironic. Um, but you know, she started feeling like the abdominal pain, which, you know, I now know is like one of like the only symptoms that someone feels in the beginning about ovarian cancer and uh, abdominal pain could be anything. Um, but I actually, I was running the New York marathon that year. And she started feeling this way right around the marathon. And she always came in to watch me. And um, she, (laughs) so my mom was sassy little Sicilian woman from New Jersey. And you did not mess with her. And so she kept saying to doctors, I don't remember how many doctors she went to, but, you know, I think she just kind of like made the rounds of, you know, like probably went to like a gastro and her gynecologist and. It was actually her primary care doctor that um, finally suggested that like she get, I don't know, an ultrasound or uh, a sonogram or whatever, and that they test the CA-125. Yeah. So she was like pushing all these doctors. She's like, you know, my daughter's running the marathon next week. I need answers before I go into the city. So um, you need to, you need, you need to move up these appointments. And they were like, all right, lady. Like, I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so 
yeah. So I think it was finally her primary care doctor who suggested like basically getting tested for ovarian cancer. And, um, you know, I think the, like the original scans in the CA-125 came back that like, yes, it probably was. And so then they suggested an oncologist um, and they suggested uh, going to Columbia and going to um, Dr. Burke, which I don't, I don't know if you'd know him. I know he used to work at Valley. <laughs> yeah, he used to, he was here right before I got here. So like we've not, we've crossed, not crossed paths, but everyone loves him. He is. One yeah. And everyone calls him Billy Burke from mm-hmm. what I've heard. Yep. yep. <laughs> um, yeah. So I remember, you know, my entire family. So I'm an only child, but my entire family, meaning like me, my dad, my aunt, my cousin, like all of us go to her initial appointment and it was in November and it's really cold. And like, we're all wearing our big puffy coats and, um, you know, we're all crowding into his office. And I remember I, um, like recorded the conversation on my phone because one of my friends had worked at Sloan Kettering and she had suggested doing that. She's like, you know, she's like, it's going to be really emotional. And like, there's going to be so much that you're not going to remember. Um, you know, and, we all had a million questions for him and I very clearly, I remember him saying something about the life expectancy being like five years or 10 years and, um, or like the typical life expectancy. I was like, yeah, but you don't know my mom. Like she's, she's different. (laughs) And like when I've written about that, um, I've, I've always been thinking to myself, like, does every family say that? No, I will tell you no. Really? Yeah. And I think partly a lot of people are just, so it's interesting. Not everyone wants to know numbers. So personally, I always, I don't offer it unless someone asks me because I think they're just averages and like, yeah, you know, that it can help some people. It can hurt some people. But a lot of times, like you said, it's just so emotional and so overwhelming that Sometimes people are just kind of stunned into silence with those numbers. Yeah. yeah. Um, And obviously the younger that you are, the harder it is to hear. Some people really don't want to know. And I, and I think they're just, I mean, I have so many people who've unfortunately lived less and people who've lived longer. So, but I think it can be helpful for some. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like we heard that and it was, so scary but like that first time sitting in his office like we thought she would beat it like we had no doubt in our mind that she would beat it like she was really strong and you know now I've learned it doesn't necessarily mean how how strong you are that makes a difference but Mm -hmm. um yeah I mean it was really scary my dad has told me since that um, I think once we all walked out of the room, like he was just in the room with Dr. Burke and Dr. Burke said something of, of like, yeah, you know, like this isn't good. Like ovarian cancer is like pretty deadly. Um, and yeah, my dad never told me that. And, you know, I've now said to him like, oh, I'm so sorry that like you had to carry those words around alone. It was so overwhelming hearing that so my mom had cancer. And I imagine that she started, you know, getting all the routine, the standard treatment. What was it like for you? Now, you know, you're normally in the daughter role, you're training for the marathon, kind of did your roles flip? Did you find yourself not in the mom role, but kind of in this caregiver, like I have to take charge now? Yeah, totally. Um, And especially, you know, my dad, living with her being there day to day like his head was just I think more in it and he not that I was very clear-headed either but he was like a little bit more clear-headed it's like I felt like I could see the big picture a little more and like I had plenty of friends who were doctors um you know so I've yeah I felt like I had to like project manage things a little bit um you know and I remember um when she was getting chemo like the first time I left work and I went up to Columbia to sit there with her when she had chemo um when she had her first surgery I was there again the entire family was there 
<laughs> it's so funny hearing you say that because like now in COVID, that's just like an unheard of situation. Like you yeah. get a person if that. Yeah. Yeah. Most of these appointments, there were like five or six of us there. <laughs> Which is nice. You know, it was probably yeah. a lot of really good support for her. Yeah. And like even more people to like, you know, make sure that we asked literally all the questions. But And, and so... You know, it's interesting you said your dad's in it, right? Because he's living with her. He's dealing with everything. Did you find that, like, you were able to almost compartmentalize? Like, mom is getting chemo today, and now I'm going to go, and, like, I can maybe do something that, like, is my life, and I don't have to think about it all. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit. Um, You know, especially, like, I was obviously working and running a lot and busy, so... Yeah, it kind of just became like, okay, this is like just something else I do right now. I deal with my mom who has cancer. I like go up to Columbia once in a while when she has like a surgery or something happens or she gets chemo. Um, yeah. And, you know, as soon as I slowed down, I, you know, was really struggling. But as a New Yorker at the time, I tried not to ever slow down. <laughs> Well, and, and it helps. I think sometimes it just helps if you just keep going, but we see this a lot where people keep going and, and I'm curious to see, kind of you hear your experience with it for my patients, you know, you're literally like overwhelmed with all these appointments and treatments and surgeries and planning and all of that. And then kind of once the dust not settles, but like things slow down a little bit, a lot of people are then left to be like, wait, what just happened? Right. And that's when we we don't often talk about mental health with cancer, but it's a huge issue. So what was mom's experience and then your experience with your mental health? Yeah. So I had already been in therapy and I'm so glad I'd already been in therapy. Um, And it was funny. I had started antidepressants a few months before and I was like, wow, that was like some foreshadowing. I'm like really glad I'm on medicine. Um, But I remember like very clearly at I want to say maybe like the second appointment, the nurse practitioner, um, my mom was really, really anxious, understandably. Um, And the nurse practitioner, you know, asked if she wanted a Zoloft prescription. And my mom was like, no, I'm okay. I don't need that. Like, I just need, I just need to worry about like my physical health. And, And she's like, I don't, I don't want any more side effects. And everyone was like, well, um, you're on chemo. So whatever the side effects are for Zoloft are nothing compared to chemo. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Um, but she wouldn't take it. I mean, and I, you know, I wish she had, but it was her decision. Um, yeah. But so my mental health, I mean, I think, like I said, the, so the first round, and I guess we'll get into that. The first round, I was convinced that she was going to beat it. Yeah, like I wasn't worried about her dying. Like I knew it was going to be hard for us. But I think the thing that was the most difficult for me as far as my mental health was that any big thing I'd have ever had to deal with in the past, like she was my person. And, you know, I couldn't really, I didn't want to put that burden on her of how worried I was about her, um, you know, and, or tell her like it disappointed me that like she wasn't able to talk to me as much because she wasn't feeling well or she was sleeping. So that was, that was pretty difficult. Um, and she just, she got really, really snappy and really moody, which I don't know if that's like a chemo side effect can um, be it, you know everyone's different but it definitely can be I think when people are scared and just you yeah know, react in different ways right yeah and the fact that your life is like feeling like hell mm-hmm. um but yeah she was really snappy and I remember like I don't know like there was some stupid drama going on at work and I told her about it and she was like yeah well I have cancer so and I was like okay all right oh. All right. So in some ways, um, it started, it felt like she was slipping away from me, even while she was still there. And after that first round of chemo, did she have surgery? That's pretty typical. 
Yeah. So they, they tried to do the surgery first. They were going to do the surgery, then the chemo. And when they went to do the surgery, you know, I guess they, whenever they got in there, I think they thought it was like one big tumor. Um, but he called it like sprinkles. Um, like it was just a little bit all over. And, you know, we'd been told the surgery was going to take a long time. And he comes out, I want to say like an hour when it was supposed to be like four or five hours or something. I was like, oh my God, my mom died. My mom died on the operating table. Um, and yeah, he said that it, you know, it, it was like kind of all over. And I was like, is that worse? And he was like, no, it's just different, which I don't know if that's true. <laughs> well, I mean, I think, you know, nowadays it was different seven, seven years ago, because nowadays we are really trying to do a lot more chemo up front yeah. to avoid these kind of situations. But back then that was, that was when the tides were turning. So back, back then it was still like, if you can get in there and do surgery, that's what we were yeah. So the treatments change, but you know, with anything in, in medicine, times change and treatments change. Yeah. Yeah. So they weren't able to do the surgery. Um, and so then they did do chemo first. Um, and she responded like a champ to chemo, like her CA-125 was going down really quickly. And, um, you know, her doctors were saying like, you know, they hadn't seen anyone like respond that quickly in a while. And, um, you know, so we were all really, really hopeful and she got diagnosed in November and then it was, I say she finished treatment maybe like May ish. Um, and July 8th, these, they found, I think no evidence of disease. Is that what they mm -hmm. say? Like it's not in remission until yeah. it's no, just no evidence. Yeah. Yeah, so they found, like, no evidence of disease on July 8th, and uh, spoiler alert, she died exactly a year later on July 8th. What was that year like to go from this, what I imagine was a very celebratory moment that she was, what we thought, cancer-free, and then everything that must have transpired in that year? <sighs> yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah. I mean, I remember I was out in the Hamptons. I was lying on the beach when I got that phone call and, you know, I sent her champagne. My friends and I had champagne. I was so happy. Um, and she was, you know, doing better for a couple of months. And during her treatment, she was like, you know, when I get better, like I want to go away. And she had said Hawaii. And my dad was like, I will literally go anywhere you want. And she was afraid of getting on a plane because she was, you know, still recovering and weaker than she'd been. Um, but she'd always talked about the mansions in Rhode Island. And I was like, okay, like, let's, let's go to Newport then. Um, and I pushed really, really hard for us to do that. And I'm so glad that I did because it ended up being our last trip together um, as a family. And, you know, like we made some beautiful memories, but um yeah, I mean, and even even going into the second round, like I, you know, I just was still optimistic that like things would be okay, and you know, maybe it would be harder, and but still optimistic that things would be okay. But um, then, right before Christmas, it was like December twenty first, I think, because a lot of these dates are now burned into my head. Um, she had to get an emergency bowel resection. Oh my gosh. She had a bowel perforation. She had to get an emergency bowel resection. And, you know, she ended up with a bag. And she thought that having the bag was, like, the end of her life. And I was, like, you know, I'm I'm sure that's hard. Like, I can't even imagine. I was, like, but I, I know people my age. Like, I have friends whose fathers have had them. Like, again, I can't even imagine. But, like. Yeah. You you know, it's. You it's not the end of the world. Perspective, right. Yeah. Yeah. But I like, I also remember, oh, I was so mad at my dad. So I was raised Catholic. And while we were waiting for the surgery, um, we're in the hotel, or hotel <laughs> in the hospital room at Columbia. And my dad in front of her asks for a priest to come read last rites. <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, dad, you do not say that in front of her. And I like pulled him out 
And I was like, look, if you're going to call a priest to read last rites, which I don't think she needs, um, at least don't do it in front of her. Yeah. Um, But yeah, she came through it and she came through it okay. And I mean, relatively okay. Um, But it seemed like that was really the beginning of the end. Um, They, like looking back, um, they because it was right before Christmas, they made like a really concerted effort to get her out before Christmas, um, you know, safely, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just remember her lying really, really sick on the couch. And, you know, my parents hadn't decorated the Christmas tree because they were dealing with her treatment. And my mom's name was Carol and Christmas was such a big deal to her. And I was like, dad, we need to decorate the Christmas tree. Like, I don't care. Like, this is not for me. Like this, if she, like, if she wakes up, if she's with it at all, she's going to be sad that the Christmas tree is not decorated. Like we need to do this for her. Um, yeah. And, you know, we have like a really small Christmas, which like, you know, in the scheme of things, it wasn't about the gifts, but it was about things just feeling different. Um, yeah. I mean, and then those like, six or seven months like between that big surgery and her dying were just absolute hell. Like she was in and out of the hospital so much. And I just kept wondering when I was going to either get a call that she was in the hospital again, or that she had died. Um, you know, so anytime my phone rang and I saw it was my dad, I freaked out. Um, what was that like? I mean, trying to, you're working or, you know, you're doing stuff like living your life. And how do you kind of live the days knowing that your mom is so sick and that she is dying? Yeah. I mean, it just, it really just felt like too, it felt like too much to handle. Like it felt like it was like, I was living in like some surreal nightmare and um, I had had a, friend who lost her mom to pancreatic cancer um and like a little bit closer to the end my friend was like you know I know you're going through hell right now like you're not always gonna feel like this um you're not gonna feel like this forever because yeah watching her in pain watching her in so much pain um you know the more surgeries she got like the more you know, like getting a feeding tube and um, I don't even got I remember all the things that happened, but um, you know, just the more things that happened and like the more like support it seemed she was needing for like basic life functions. Um, you know, to me, I kind of started seeing the writing on the wall of like, I, now that all of these things have happened, like, I don't know how we come back from this. You know, I, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of started seeing the writing on the wall and I was also, I was going back and forth from the city to New Jersey a lot. So, I mean, that was really exhausting for me too. Um, Oh God, that just made me remember like a really big thing that I kind of forgot. So I had a dog at the time, not the, not the little cutie that you see behind me. Um, (laughs) Um, but yeah, I was going back and forth between, you know, the, the city and New Jersey and my dog had really bad separation anxiety to begin with. And, you know, I didn't just like leave him. Like I had friends walk him or I had dog walkers come in, but it just wasn't enough for him because it wasn't me. And so he was barking a lot and I was getting all these complaints from my building. And I was like, I, I like literally don't know what to do. I remember like saying to the property manager, I was like, look, like I, I'm single. I'm an only child. I live alone. My mom is dying of cancer. I work full time. Like nothing I'm doing is enough in any area of my life. And like, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. Um, and he's like, Oh, I understand. I have a sick parent. Um, but no, he didn't because he kicked my dog out. So Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. So in the middle of all of this, I had to give up my dog. Um, That must have been devastating. Yeah. Yeah. It was just adding insult to injury. 
Um, and I remember one of the, like the last texts that my mom sent me, you know, even though she's so sick, she's dying. She, this was like two months before she died. She's still trying to help me coordinate like someone to take my dog. And I was like, no, mom, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, um, did you find someone to take the dog? Yeah. So thankfully one of my best friend's moms, uh, took him and it was funny I'd like texted a group chat just to be like oh god you'll never believe what happened like not at all looking for a solution my friend was like oh my mom will take him and I was like no but really and she's like no really and I was like oh my god thank god That's <laughs> something was easy something like a relief yeah can you talk about I think a lot of people struggle when it is the end And when is the family members to kind of say, you know, it's time for hospice or it's time to stop treatment. I think people feel like they're letting down their loved one or giving up, which is a phrase I hate, but yeah, because it's not, but what was your experience in that time? Yeah, that's a really good question because my dad and I had very differing ideas on that. Um, you know, again, like I said, he was there like day in, day out with her. Um, you know, we had, she had a caretaker. Um, and like towards the very end, like, you know, we had all the home care that was like 24 seven, but like most of the time my dad was the one up in the middle of the night with her. And, um, yeah, so he's going through a day, day in, day out. And he doesn't have like all like the doctor and nurse friends like I do. So, I felt like I had a little, a little bit more knowledge and a little bit more clarity to be like, this is like, I know, like, we know, we know where this is going. Like, we're, I don't know, like, we're kind of deluding ourselves otherwise. And I remember about six weeks before she died, I started asking about palliative care um, because I mean, it was, the chemo was being so, so rough on her. Um, And I also forgot to mention, like, at some point during all of this, like, she just wasn't even strong enough to sit in the car long enough to go to the city. So that was when we transitioned her care to Valley, Mm -hmm. um, because it was like 15 minutes from us versus like an hour plus for my parents. Um, But yeah, we started asking about palliative care and, um, you know, her doctor at the time was like, you know. I'm happy to do like whatever you guys want to do. Like, yeah, this is kind of looking like towards the end, um, you know, and I just wanted her to have some quality of life because she really was having no quality of life at that point. Like when she had the big surgery, um, like my dad bought one of those medical recliners and like, she basically didn't get out of it for like the last six months of her life, which was torturous absolutely torturous for her for all of us to watch um but he just really wanted to keep trying the treatment as long as we could um and I wrote down on a, on a post-it all like the different chemos that she had and I remember the last one was Gemzar mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I Googled it, seeing that like it was something they used to treat pancreatic cancer. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> we're screwed. Like, I guess that like this feels like it's kind of like a Hail Mary pass at this point. Like, um, and my dad had read some story in the paper that they were using Keytruda for some other kind of cancer. And he was begging with the doctors like to be able to try that. And he was like, I don't care. Like, very lucky that we had the, the ability to, but he's like, I don't care. I will pay out of pocket. I don't care what it costs to save my, my wife. And, you know, we couldn't get approved in time, but it okay. ended up. I will tell you that it doesn't really work for ovarian cancer. So okay. years, well, years of research now have shown it has like a 10% response rate. Okay. Well, I guess it's. It's probably good we didn't spend all that much, much. but like you didn't do, you know, you didn't miss out on something really good. Works Um, really well for other cancers. Um, yeah, and it ended up being that you know they did her labs before one of the chemos, and that you know they just weren't high enough to do the chemo anymore, and so that kind of forced our hand. 
Um, and so she stopped treatment like probably about three weeks before she died. Um, and I was like, really, I just kept pushing for my dad to put her on hospice, like put her on hospice. Uh, and he didn't. And we ended up putting her on hospice like six days before she ended up dying. And like, even to that, we put her in hospice on a Sunday. My dad, his dads are great communicators. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I was on my way home and I thought that this was a meeting we were going to have together. And I'm switching at the train station in Hoboken to take the train to Ridgewood. And he calls and he's like, yeah, so I just put mom on hospice. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? What? At the train station. Yeah. And so I'm like trying to catch my train and trying to not like pass out in the Hoboken train station. Like I couldn't go through there for months. Um, And yeah, he'd put her on hospice. And I mean, that was surreal. And then like that last week we went through, like something I remember specifically is like, she was having hallucinations from, I don't know, the morphine or she's on everything at that point. Um, I remember she's on, you know, a lot of fentanyl. Like I had never heard of fentanyl before. And so when I started hearing about it in the news, I was like, that's not that strong. Like my mom took that for cancer and like it, it didn't help with her pain, but that's, that's how much pain she was in. Um, but I remember she thought that there were bugs crawling all over her one day. And, you know, my instinct is to be like, no, there's not, mom. Like, you're okay. And her caretaker, whom I don't really like, but that is kind of irrelevant right now otherwise, said, it's okay, Carol. Like, we'll get the bugs off of you. And I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. I Wow. I, that's That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I think that was like a kind of beautiful moment and a lot of weirdness. Yeah. But it's like a validating statement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Where were you that last week? Um, so I was going back and forth a lot again. Um, she wasn't really talking anymore, like other than just like scream and pain. So I actually had had another trip to the Hamptons scheduled because, you know, like I said, it was a year before that she got that news. It was, I always went that weekend. Um, And I was saying to my dad, I'm like, do like, I don't know, do I go? Is it bad if I go? And he's like, well, honestly, you're just sitting around waiting for her to die. If, if you don't go. Um, And I was like, okay. And he's like, you know, know that you might have to come back. And I had gone back into the city to have an appointment with my psychiatrist. And I walked in with a suitcase and she's like, Oh, like, you know, what's, what's the suitcase for? I was like, Oh, well, um, I have funeral clothes and I have beach clothes and, uh, I don't know which one of them I'm going to need or both. And she was like, okay, what can I write you? (laughs) Oh my gosh. But I ended up being, out in the Hamptons I was on my way back when I got the call from my dad that she died I was on the phone with Maggie for like an hour the night before and she's like you know what like I can't really tell you what to do she's like but if it were me like I don't think you would regret going home and I was like okay you're right um I was pretty adamant and like the other reason that I felt okay going was because I very much knew I didn't want to see her die. Like I did not want to see that moment. Mm -hmm. Everything else I had seen was so difficult for me that I was like, I don't want this image in my head of like the moment that she passed. And, uh, you know, so for like a while after I, um, you know, intellectually, I still felt good with that, but emotionally I really grappled with it. And I really felt guilty of like, oh, like your mom's dying and like you have to go to the Hamptons, like come on, Theodora. Um, but, you know, eventually kind of came to terms with that. Was like you were just doing whatever you could to deal at the time. Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's no rule book about it. And yeah. after she died, what happened? What did your life look like? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, 2017 
was the worst year of my life, like by far, not just because my mom died, but also because like I said, I had to give up my dog. Um, I've been like dating this guy, um, like kind of a couple, couple weeks before she died. And then like through the rest of the summer, he dumped me at the end of the summer. No. <laughs> fucking kidding me. <laughs> oh, oh. He's like, I don't think I have the capacity to date right now. I was like, oh, you don't? Because my mom just died. So tell me wow. more about how you don't have the capacity to date. Yeah. Um, but then we both ran the Jersey City half a couple weeks later. And I passed him. So Good. Th- that, <laughs> yes. Yes, he didn't really have the capacity to train either. <laughs> I just lacked capacity in all, all of the things. Yeah. Um, and then three months after she died, I got laid off. Oh, my God. Which was just really kind of like the icing on the cake, um, you know. Wow. Yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah, so, so much had happened and. So my days also went to then I was like, okay, like I had appreciated my job had been really flexible while she was sick. Um, You know, and I was like taking calls from the hospital and doing work like in her hospital room. But during that time, like I started appreciating that freedom of not being chained to a desk all the time. And so when I got laid off, I was like, okay, like I'm going to freelance. Like I don't want to go sit in an office right now. Mm-hmm. And how did that turn out? In retrospect, I do think I probably should have gone back to a nine to five, um, just have more structure in my life because I like clearly I was grieving my mom and also everything else that happened that year. And um, that was just like too much time alone with my thoughts. How how did you grieve? And I know that's a very bad question in a sense because everyone grieves differently, but what helped you? Uh, um, I mean, there were things that helped me and there were things that hurt me. I was certainly drinking way, way too much. Um, you know, I was really kind of struggling with drinking and like, had a little bit of a pill problem. Um, I, I was probably the most unhealthy part of my coping. Um, but I, I was traveling a lot therapy therapy, you know, like I said, medication really kind of thank my, thanks my lucky stars of like the weird timing that I started on medication, um, just before she got sick. Um, yeah. And I, don't think I really and truly let myself grieve and like truly start processing things for maybe two years. Like, I think I just, I was just so, so stuck in it. Um, And I guess you should probably put a trigger warning at the beginning, but um, I attempted suicide twice. Like I just did, I was so depressed I was in such a dark place. I did not want to live. Um, I was like, I too many things have gone wrong. Like, I, I don't want to see anything else go wrong. I can't handle it. And I ended up after the second time being like, okay, like if nothing changes, nothing changes. And I went to like residential mental health treatment. And, you know, that just kind of got me away from all the triggers and from, you know, from the alcohol, from the pills and, um, you know, helped me start to really work through things and like really process more of her death and, um, take care of myself and like, think about the rest of my life and what I wanted and realizing that I had the rest of my life. Um, and that, I could be making my own decisions. Like I was really, really close with my mom and we had a little bit of a codependent relationship. Um, like I said, she was Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Italian didn't work. I was adopted. So 
a, a gazillion factors being super codependent. So I don't know. I was always really afraid of her judgment. And in some ways it was liberating to realize I didn't have to worry about her judgment anymore. And like could start making different decisions for myself that I might not have if she were alive. Thank you for sharing that. And I appreciate you being so open and honest. And I think it's, it's going to help people who have found themselves in really maybe similar situations. What was your relationship like with your dad during all of this? You know, it must have been hard for both of you and for him to see everything that was happening. Yeah, that is a great question. <laughs> My dad, so we'd always been really close as a family and I always had a really good relationship with my mom mostly. Um, but my dad and I never really had our own relationship, not in a bad way. It just didn't yeah. feel like we needed one because we were close as a family. Um, so it was when she was sick that I realized I didn't have much of a relationship with him. Like going out to dinner, I was like, Oh my God, this is so awkward. I don't know if I've just gone out to dinner with my dad as an adult. Um, I mean, in some ways it, in some ways it felt like I lost both parents at once um, because he was not much of an emotional support. Um, He just doesn't and didn't have the capacity, um, which again is something that I can say those words and I know that intellectually, but I still get really upset. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, we want things from our parents that even if we know they can't give them to us. Yeah. Doesn't make it any, any easier. Has your relationship changed in the last few years? Um, I would, I would say not, not really. Um, because now also his health is declining. Um, so, I mean, there's one kind of that anticipatory grieving with him, like all over again. Um, and also kind of grieving the fact that I will never have that relationship with him that I think I'd hoped I might after she died. Mm-hmm. And you moved out to California. So yes. what prompted all of that? I mean, I mean, yeah. amazing, but you know, <laughs> I mean, I live across the street from the beach. That's a no. Um, yeah, exactly. But like, well, you know, you're a New Yorker yeah. and New Yorkers yes. love New York. So, yeah. um, and I hated LA before this. Um, I made fun of, I was totally a New Yorker made fun of people from LA, but when she was so sick and I was going back and forth between the city and New Jersey all the time, I was like, you know, knowing it was imminent. I was like, oh my God, when this happens, like, I just need to go away. I just need a change of scenery. And, you know, I think I thought I would do something dramatic and like go on a surfing retreat to Costa Rica or, you know, something big like that. And then I was like, I don't know. I'm tired. I'm sad. I don't know. I have friends in LA, whatever. I'll go to LA. Um, Not at all expecting that trip to change my life. Um, I stayed with two different friends who I don't know if they were on a campaign to get me to move here, but they did such a good job of just like showing me like, just like really LA things, like going to the beach in Malibu Mm -hmm. and like going to a meditation class in Venice. And, um, so I came back here and visited a lot for a year. And then I decided the fall of 2018 to like give it a try moving out here tried it for the fall uh came back and was like no I'm a New Yorker I'm a New Yorker um and then that was when I ended myself up in treatment and I was like so uh, maybe about that California thing like maybe California is just a better place for me and my mental health um and I had gone to treatment in San Diego so and what you've um since moving to California you become a therapist. 
So I have. <laughs> how was it just all, everything that had happened or was it something that you'd always wanted to do? Yeah, it was kind of everything that had happened. I'm not, I'm not sure I would have done this if things hadn't happened. I mean, I think it had been like a little bit in the back of my mind when I had started going to therapy. I had started going to therapy regularly when I was 30 and she died when I was 34. So I'd already been in therapy for a while. Um, it was like maybe in the back of my head a little bit, but, um, you know, I felt like, oh, I'm in my thirties. I'm too old to go back to school. And, um, you know, I didn't want to go for like a couple years without like working full time and having an income. Um, but when I was in treatment, I actually heard like one of my friends there talking about she wanted to go to school to become a therapist. And I was like, you know, I think I was self-stigmatizing and I think I thought, oh, like, you know, that sounds cool, but I don't know. I'm too crazy for that. And I was like, well, if someone else who's here in this same program as me thinks that they can do it, maybe I can. And when we had filled out like our intake paperwork, when we got there, um, they were like, you know, trying to do, um, you know, uh, like case management and asking us like what, uh, like resources or whatever we would need afterwards. And something was like, do you need any additional schooling for your goals? And I put down maybe to go back to school to become a therapist. Um, and yeah, I thought about it. I didn't bring it up to my therapist while I was there because I was just so afraid that she was going to be like, girl, like you're an inpatient treatment. Like you think you can become a therapist. So much self-stigmatizing. <laughs> so much self-stigmatizing. <laughs> um, you know, and then I kept going back and forth for a couple months after I moved out here. Cause I just, I was freelancing and I just freelancing is hard and I just wasn't feeling it. And I was like, okay, I need, I kind of need to make a decision. Like, am I going to go back to a full-time job somewhere or am I going to go back to school? Um, and I was like, no, I think I, I think I need to give this a try. Um, I mean, and it was also like a big part of it was like, I mean, therapy literally saved my life. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'd had some amazing therapists and some, a couple terrible ones. Um, you know, but I wanted to be able to give to other people what I had gotten in my time in need. And you're all done with school. I am all done with school. I graduated about six weeks ago. I just got my associate number. Congratulations. And you're doing you. marriage and family therapy or everything. So, How does this work? Everything. Yeah. So that's technically what the license is. Um, I don't really want to do any marriage and family <laughs> therapy. That's just what my program was. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do with it. Originally, when I started the program, I thought I wanted to work with like young women with mood disorders. Um, you know, kind of like high functioning women like ourselves. Um, this is like so cheesy and trite, but like I had no other way to say it of like helping people realize like how awesome they are. People yeah. don't realize how awesome they are. Everyone needs that. Like, yeah. Everybody needs that. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but like now, like there's just so much I want to try in the realm of therapy. Like I want to try working at a treatment center like I did um, or like I went to um, also just because it seems like a good way to learn, like just a ton of skills, um, mm -hmm. cause it's kind of an all hands on deck situation. Um, and I have done ketamine treatment for depression and had a pretty bad therapist there. Um, so again, wanting to give something I didn't get at the time, um, you know, and obviously ketamine and psychedelics are just such like an interesting and hot field mm -hmm. right now. Um, no, it's, it's true. I mean, there's definitely so many options. Let me ask you a question now though, who, cause I get this, I talk about therapy a lot. And like, as you said, like talking, going back to your mom, right. She didn't want to do it. And, but who should see a therapist? 
it's a broad question, but I, I want your expertise and I want you to say it on the podcast. <laughs> everyone can hear it. I mean, I think that most people could benefit from a therapist. Like I, you know, I want to say everybody can, but I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure it is for everyone. The hill that I will die on though is running is not therapy. Spin is not therapy. Mm-hmm. They are therapeutic. Um, you know, and I think I think like statements like that, like I'm joking a little bit, but I think statements like that, you know, people who are struggling can hear that and be like, oh, like running's not enough for me. Like that means I'm doing something wrong or um, yeah, I mean, I think most people can benefit from therapy. Like most people can be- benefit to, you know, just having a neutral third party for them, having someone to listen to them that is just there to listen to them that doesn't, you know, have a dog in the fight, doesn't know anybody else in their lives. Um, you know, and I say most people can benefit from therapy because, you know, there are some bad therapists out there. And if you end up with the wrong therapist, like, you know, you probably will not benefit from therapy. But how do you um, find how do you find a therapist? And how do you find, like, is it okay, if you don't like your therapist to go get a new one? Because I think where a lot of people struggle is there, they would do it, they don't know where to start. Yeah. Um, I mean, and so like, first of all, therapy should obviously be a lot more accessible and a lot less costly. Um, like it shouldn't need to be a privilege to get therapy. Mm Um, you know, but like, I, I think there's a lot of ways I think, you know, asking a friend that, you know, that goes to therapy, like not your best friend, because that would be a little bit of a conflict of interest for the therapist, but like, you know, asking a friend, asking, you know, a doctor that you go to that you trust, um, you know, looking on your insurance panel. Um, and then, you know, there's obviously there's like the big directories like psychology today. Um, and I feel like even, I mean, even just Googling, like, let's say like grief therapy, Santa Monica, um, I feel like usually, brings um mm-hmm. brings up decent results if you google for just therapy in your area um you know and there's um there's a lot of like other sites that are like different kind of directory sites like i think advocate is one of them my mind is blanking right now uh oh i think it's open open path collective is one that has lower cost therapy um, and it's, you pay like a $60 membership and then your sessions are all between like 50 and 80. Um, so I think that's, you know, a really good way to find therapy. And then, you know, I'm a pre-licensed therapist. So that means that I'm supervised by a licensed therapist and, you know, I'm at a clinic that specifically is therapists in training. So, um, you know, we work with a lot of lower income people. So, you know, I think definitely most cities would have similar clinics to this and, you know, universities also have, have things like that for students. Well, that's a great, that's a great idea because I'm sure you need, you want clients or practice and a lot of people could, could really benefit. Yeah. I need hours, only 2,300 to go. 2,300? Yeah, a wow. total of 3,000. I'm at 700. <laughs> and after, that's a lot, but I mean, it's good. It's yeah, important. Absolutely. Yeah. And so after that, then you can practice independently. Right. Do you yeah. do virtual? Because I mean, we'll just, we can get you hours. <laughs> come, come, <laughs> come be my clinic therapist. <laughs> um, I've only ever done virtual. I have never seen a client in person. Yeah, that's just, it's crazy. But people have said that like you get to see the person in their habitat and like maybe that's in a yeah. better. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it, you know, definitely gives you just more context clues about them with the unspoken stuff. I mean, you know, 
looking at you're looking at me on zoom right now and you can see like I have like a bright cheery room and yeah and I've just been admiring the color-coded books that's very beautiful back there thank you that's really my crowning achievement of the pandemic not the master's degree (laughs) the books definitely the books um you can see this is I'm in my office but the poster that Van Gogh that is from my college dorm room it has made it from like 2000 I don't know when 2005 or something like that 2001 when did we graduate I don't even know something somewhere in somewhere (laughs) in that time frame um Theodore, this was really, really helpful. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to touch on or share? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. I do. I, I really enjoyed this. One, just one last question. Um, and I think more of a statement, but an important one. The grief, you know, we always talk about grief ebbs and flows and there's no kind of time like timestamp on grief and just looking back at the last seven years, you know, do you still have those hard moments and are they less intense than they were seven years ago? That's a good question. Um, Yes, I absolutely definitely still have those moments. And last month was five years ago. And I kept saying to my therapist, like, Oh, this all feels so raw again. Like just like it did then, um and occasionally I'll have moments like that especially especially around the holidays um also especially because my mom loved the holidays so much um but most of the time yeah they're not as intense and they're not as like debilitating like knocking me out and you know being on the floor crying or just being in a really dark place and yeah, they're a little easier for me to deal with now. Like the, I guess now that the wound is scabbing for gross analogy. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what it, but real, but real. Um, have you made new traditions for some of those holidays and things like that? Um, kind of around Christmas, I'm trying to. Um, it The thing about moving that's been nice is like just being able, everything out here is brand new for me. Um, you know, and like on her death anniversary, like I take a surfing lesson every year. Um, and this year I decided to make, she made amazing spaghetti sauce and make her spaghetti sauce for my friends and like have limoncello. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, uh, sorry. I actually did think of one more thing. Yes. Um, like I have some clients now who have had cancer and, you know, again, I obviously have never been in their shoes, but watching my mom go through it, like definitely helps me understand them a lot more than I think maybe someone who hadn't been as close to this might um, you know, so it definitely gives me like that kind of layer of empathy, but to the point that one of my clients asked once, like, have you had cancer? And I'm like, no, my mom did. But, and I, I actually think that it gives you a really unique perspective because a lot of what people struggle with, and I'm not going to pretend to know it firsthand, but a lot of what people struggle with is like relationships after cancer, right? Both intimately within your nuclear family, within your friend circle. And I think having you as being the daughter and and being a caregiver, you probably have a very different view of this. Yeah. You know, and so that probably gives you a really, really unique perspective to add. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, wait, but are you accepting new patients? Like I'm not joking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I actually am. I'm starting in private practice this month, but I can only see people who are in California. Um, I know, but because it's virtual, um, anywhere in California, but yeah, they have to be in California. Yeah. All right. Well, if you're listening and you're from California, this is where you need to go. (laughs) And one day I I will get licensed in New Jersey, actually. Um, yeah, my family's there. So, and we would like 
just call me and we'll get you. <laughs> <laughs> um, where can listeners connect with you, find you online, all that good stuff? Yeah, my Instagram is theadorable. Love it. Reminiscent a, of like a, a childhood a, nickname. <laughs> AOL, like instant messenger screen names. Totally. Um, and my website is theodorablanchfields.com. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this conversation. I hope that you found it as powerful as I did. And I think it is an, a necessary reminder that grief and mental health takes different forms in people and looks different. And we need to recognize that, that it is going to be full of the ups and the downs. And it may not always look like we expect, and that's okay. One of the things that Theodora wrote on a recent Instagram post, and I'll read it to you, said, but in grief is also great beauty and life and humor. And I think that it is just so true. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can find Theodora on Instagram at theadorable or on her website at theadorablanchfield.com. You can find me at Dr. Doplinski, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. If you could take a moment to leave a rating or review or both for the interlude podcast on Apple, that is always such a huge help for me as it helps me to grow the show and to bring it to new listeners. Thank you again for listening and I will see you soon.